Welcome to the Tuesday, or no, no, start again. Welcome to the Friday Q&A. I used to do it on Tuesdays, uh, but now, yeah, Fridays at 1 p.m., whatever time it is in California, that's 1 p.m. Pacific time, Pacific Standard Time. And the idea here is to answer your questions about theology, apologetics, and the Bible, the Christian faith, Christian life, dealing with whether they're doubting type questions or they're just curious questions or maybe life struggle questions, all those things. I'm going to give you my open and honest answers. I'm Mike Winger. I'm a pastor here in Southern California, and I'm just glad you guys have joined me. You do not have to agree with everything I say, like you would care if I didn't say that. But the point is, I want to have that attitude because I am like you, an observer of Christ, an observer of scripture and not the authority on all things. But I'm one who observes it a lot and spends a lot of my time thinking about these things and I want to help other people think about them too because I think scripture and the clarity that comes from God's word will change your life. It will change your whole life and the way you see all kinds of issues. And there's life is full of landmines, you know? There's all kinds of problems and troubles that we don't notice are coming. And scripture can be like that metal detector, perhaps, the thing that sort of warns us ahead of time that we have these problems coming our way. And so uh, our first question today, as you guys are loading your questions in the chat, our first question today comes from Tim, who has an apologetics-related question. And this one is about something called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. If you're not familiar with it, I'll explain it, and then I'll answer the question. Tim says, when using the Kalam Cosmological Argument, how can I convince skeptics that this argument should lead to belief in the God of the Bible specifically, and not just a creator in general? Okay, so to catch you up, in case you're not familiar with it, the Kalam Cosmological Argument is, there, there's a group of arguments, which means like a case being made for the existence of God, ways to, to show that God exists, right? And, and these things, uh, there's a cluster of them called cosmological arguments that are arguments from sort of the existence and nature of the cosmos or the universe. And the Kalam is one of these arguments. There's actually a bunch of them. And this is one of the arguments. And it goes like this, whatever, it's just two statements and a conclusion. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's this first statement. And I think you'd be you'd be hard pressed to deny that. Okay, so whatever begins to exist has a cause. Right? Things don't just pop into existence out of nothing. That's not how reality works. And if you want to say it is, you're you're playing games. You're like watching too much X Men and not reading enough science, in my opinion. Um, and then two, the universe began to exist. Okay, that's a statement too. And you can see how they relate to each other, right? Because if whatever begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist, then the conclusion would be the universe has a cause. Okay, that may seem like a subtle subtle conclusion, but very quickly this pushes you to belief in God. And the question that Tim has is, how do I show them that it's the God of the Bible specifically and not just a creator in general? Okay, I won't defend the Kalam cosmological argument. I actually have a video doing that with Braxton Hunter, and you guys can just search um, like Mike Winger Kalam, K-A-L-A-M, or Mike Winger Braxton Hunter, and, and it should pop up there. But the idea is this, if, if you once realize the universe has a cause, you then do what's called a conceptual analysis. You start to answer the question of, okay, well, what could potentially cause the universe? And this is where it sort of forces you into a very Christian-like God, though it doesn't give you all the details of Christ. I don't think the Kalam gives you, the Kalam cosmological argument gives you Jesus and the cross. But I think what it does is it makes, it makes the, the atheist more of like a theist and then they have to realize something very important about the kind of God that this argument shows exists. And it is the kind of God that's consistent with the God of the Bible. Let me give you a quick rundown of this. I'm trying to spend too much time on this, but I could talk about it for quite a while. Um, 
so the universe as as a dr william lane craig um who everyone <laughs> everyone respects except those who've been brainwashed to disrespect the man um but at any rate uh, the way he likes to put this, he's like the chief proponent of this argument. He likes to say, um, you know, the universe is space, time, energy, and matter, right? So whatever made the universe is not dependent on these substances because these are the things that came into existence at the beginning, which science does support a beginning of the universe. And so whatever made the universe is conceptually something that's spaceless, right? Timeless, immaterial, and incredibly powerful. That's pretty significant because those are attributes that only really relate to like a monotheistic kind of Judeo-Christian sort of idea of God. Like immediately uh, Hinduism falls aside. It doesn't fit this description at all. Immediately old pagan religions fall aside because they don't fit. Th their gods are different types of beings. They're not spaceless, timeless, immaterial, all-powerful, right? What what religious options are out there that present this type of being? Well, you go to Genesis, you go to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, you, you look at the Bible and it clearly says that God made everything, that he is also spaceless, right? He, he's he's uh, transcendent beyond space. He's eternal. He's just always existed. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's just like, just he just is. God just is. In fact, he calls himself the I am because he just is. That means he didn't begin to exist. Which also means he doesn't need a creator, okay? So we have a, a creator that doesn't need a creator because he didn't begin to exist. That would be the second idea of the, um, the first and second idea of the argument not applying to God. Then we have spaceless, timeless, immaterial, all those things. So in short, Tim, I feel like I'm going on too long in this particular argument. What the Kalam cosmological argument does is it gives us a God that is very much like the God of the Bible. Now, one could say, um, well, I'm going to be a, a deist then. I'll say that this God created us all and then he just sort of, he's, you know, he's sort of his hands off. He doesn't care about us, doesn't involve himself in our affairs. You can say that, but this is a, what's called a non-evidenced assumption, right? There needs to be a case for that. Why is it that God who makes us doesn't want anything to do with us. Does that seem like it logically follows? And I don't think it does. Um, what it should do though, the Kalam should do, is it should at least open somebody up so that when you give them, say, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, all this historical evidence, they already have in place that there's some sort of being like the God of the Bible that exists. So when you say that Jesus rose, they have no real objection. Like philosophically, they can't say, well, God doesn't exist or God would never do that. It's impossible. Actually, we have this sort of philosophical groundwork for receiving, say, another argument. So uh, the Kalam might be a part of a bridge that brings somebody closer to an, an, an argument for an intellectual belief in Christianity, which then may be the thing that gets them closer to the real choice of faith in Christ that goes beyond an intellectual decision. It's a decision that's relational about God, right? But we want to use apologetics to break down those intellectual barriers so that people can be confronted with the relational choice of knowing and loving God. So there you go. Um, Stephen with passenger... Min oh, by the way, let me mention real quick on the Kalam. Um, this doesn't work with Mormonism, for instance. You might think, oh, it's wide open. There's all kinds of religions this works for. Like, it doesn't work for Mormonism. Mormonism has a particular creation account, traditionally, right? There are some Mormons now who are trying to kind of like spin a new Mormonism, as far as I can tell. But but traditional Mormonism would 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 be inconsistent with the universe being created out of nothing, right? They think matter is eternal because that was a prevailing theory back when Joseph Smith invented Mormonism. So he went with the prevailing scientific theory. The Bible actually says it; it's the other way, which is consistent with current scientific thinking on the topic.
Um, all right, Stephen with Passenger Ministries has a question. Is there any biblical support for the idea that Daniel eleven thirty six through 45 is talking about the Antichrist instead of Antiochus IV? Um, let me give you some quick thoughts on this, Stephen. I, I don't have all these details fresh in my mind. When it comes to this, these sort of topics, many of you would will um, you'll identify with me here. Some of these issues, you read them and you're like, I need to like freshly study this stuff to be able to wrap my head around it because we're looking at large portions of scripture. So Daniel 11 talks about the, anti, the Antichrist or Antiochus. Um, you guys, we're going heavy here, but I just want to remind you, down below after this stream is over, it takes a few hours, okay? Maybe maybe almost a day at this point because I'm going to have to edit the video because the beginning didn't work. But um, we will put timestamps to all of the all of the questions. So if you have a particular question you have no interest in, just skip ahead. You're not hurting my feelings. I, this is meant to be a blessing to you, to minister to you. Use this ministry and the video content I produce as it blesses and ministers to you. And uh, that's the whole point of it. So you can bounce around. The uh, the Antichrist, most of us know who that is. Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes is a, is a historical character from the 2nd century BC. We're talking like 160 BC. And this guy looks a lot like the Daniel 11 character. And... Um, I'm going to give you a quick reading of the passage that that um, we had Stephen bring up, and then I'll give you a couple thoughts on it. Forgive me if I don't catch you up on all the details. This is like a very involved subject, but I'll do my best. Daniel 11.36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall uh, pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts." And I'll read all the way to verse 45, which is what you asked about. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. That would be Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and um, lost my spot there. And all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. That's probably Jerusalem. Uh, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Okay, a couple things here. Um, uh, this man is very similar to Antiochus Epiphanes. And, okay, uh, broad overview. Daniel 11 is the most complex, literally, the, in, in my opinion, the most complex prophetic passage in the entire Bible. Okay, you've asked about the most complex prophetic passage of the whole Bible. It has more prophecies in this one chapter, over a hundred, than any other similarly sized piece of scripture anywhere. I do have a teaching video on this. If you look up my Evidence for the Bible series, I go through Daniel 11 and I stop 
at the point Indiana 11 where I think it shifts to talking about perhaps the Antichrist. Like I just say, okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, uh, what I will say is much of this, this is going to go with you guys, my recent teaching on um, six different end times views. Okay, this goes with that. And this might sound a little squirrely at first, but you have to understand this is established <laughs> by Christ, I think. Um, so I think that part of this is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And then as it continues and it keeps getting into more and more details, it starts to th it starts to be really referring to the ultimate Antichrist. And then you realize that Antiochus wasn't the ultimate figure it was speaking of. This this ancient guy who who broke uh, all kinds of Jewish laws, who set up an altar to Zeus in the temple back in like the 160s BC. This guy who was persecuting and hated the Jews, um, who the Jews ended up revolting against. And um, then we have the whole Maccabean stuff. Like we read about first and second Maccabees. These are not... Bible books, but they're interesting historical works. So all that complicated stuff, I think that he is a partial fulfillment, not a total fulfillment. And part of the reason is because a lot of the stuff we just read to you, some of it doesn't really click with Antiochus the fourth. It just doesn't click. The idea that he he sets himself up as God and that he he doesn't care about women. He's got no regard for the gods of his fathers. Um, those types of elements don't really click with him. This does, however, click with 2 Thessalonians when it speaks about, um, in chapter 2, when it speaks about the man of lawlessness. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord's come. For no, let no one of you, uh, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is very much the same as what we just read in Daniel 11, that he's dishonoring the gods of his fathers. He sets himself up as though he is God, but he also honors a God of fortresses. So he is this God and he's there is a God of fortresses. Well, this is consistent with the terminology Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse, which I've recently been teaching through in the Gospel of Mark, um, Mark 13. You guys can check out my teaching on that if you haven't heard it. And I go through this sort of antichrist figure, this, um, and that may not be the best term because the scripture doesn't most commonly use the term antichrist, right? So perhaps man of sin would be a good term. At any rate, I think that this Daniel 11 passage uh, is fully talking about the antichrist and only partially talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. That's my thought on this. And the reason I would then go to support this. Not only do we have 2 Thessalonians 2, but we also have Jesus himself talking about the abomination of desolation. I know guys, this is super complex. We'll go to easier stuff in a second. The abomination of desolation, which is this future event in, in the mind of Christ. This is a future prophetic thing that Daniel spoke about. Now, if you think Daniel was only talking about BC, 160 BC, then you think that event already took place, but Jesus puts it in the future. Again, suggesting that Daniel, while he initially is talking about things that start happening BC, when he gets to this particular figure, this Antichrist type figure, that guy, that's post-Christ. This is after Jesus when this guy shows up. That was Jesus' opinion. That seems to be Paul's opinion. And that's my perspective on it. Though, because of the complexity of these things, I would not divide with Christians on this topic. That's just my opinion about it. I do think that's accurate. Um, there, are, there will be arguments against it. And we should be open to hearing those things as well. So, yes. In short, Antiochus IV does not do all the stuff we read about 
in Daniel 11. Jesus takes the stuff we thought was about Antiochus and says it's about the future. Second Thessalonians describes the same things Daniel 11 describes as being about the Antichrist. Those are my reasons for why I think it's still future. Ben Johnson has a question. Says, Pastor Mike, how do you address the advanced ages found in Genesis? My wife and I were discussing this last night. She takes them literally while I view them more symbolically. How do you view it? To me, Genesis 5, this is a question I don't know the best answer to. Um, I do care about it. I'll, let me just walk you guys through a couple different thoughts on this and, and know that I'm not settled on this. I'm not trying to settle you on it, but I'm also not trying to unsettle you on it. Anytime I'm not sure on an issue that maybe some, one of you listening, you're sure about this issue, um, I just want to ask for you to have some grace on me that I on it. I'm, I'm being honest, okay? I'm not doing this for, for I've just seen videos of people, Mike's not sure of that. He's doing that for likes and clicks. It's like, that's like, <laughs> I've never done stuff for likes and clicks. Like, that's just not how it works. Um, at any rate, here's my honest, very open opinions about this. Genesis 5 it gives the genealogy, the first genealogy in the Bible. This is where most people stop reading the Bible in their yearly Bible reading. <laughs> and, and here we have Adam. He lives for a very long time. He lives 130 years. He has a son in his own likeness after his own image. He names him Seth. Uh, after Adam, he fathers Seth. Then he lives 800 years, right? Then we have um, Seth who lives 105 years, has a kid. Then he lives another 807 years. Altogether, he is 912 years old. Enosh, he lives to be 905. Kenan, the next one in the list here, he lives to be, uh, eight, uh, let's see, 910. Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah is the one who lived the longest. He lives to be 969 years. So these are very, very high ages. Now, a couple different theories are put forward. One of them is probably the most on the surface obvious theory, which is they just lived really long. And then we just want to look back and ask, how is that? Now, some people try to explain this like through scientific means and they'll suggest, um, well, the, the, the DNA of humans back then was more pure. DNA is, is getting more corrupt through subsequent generations, but back then they were more pure. Or perhaps it's the world before the flood. Some would say the world before the flood was different and people, because of the different environment, were able to live longer. Um, these things are over my head, okay? I, I, how do I endorse an argument about the corruption rates of DNA when I don't understand those things? So I'm not going to try and be that guy who pretends like he knows things he hasn't looked into. Um, so I don't know that. Um, those those would be ways of explaining it, right? Another person could just say, well, maybe, I mean, after the flood in Genesis, God, this is on the old age view of these people that they're literally living that long. Um, the, the, uh, the thing is, at the flood, God has a judgment for mankind. And it's not just that they'll die. It says in Genesis, their days will be 120 years. Let me let me take you to this passage and we'll, we'll, um, we'll see. Because... This is where God, um, let me find the passage first. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to skip around. Um, okay, so in Genesis chapter 6, this is where we have the corruption of mankind. Okay, there it is, verse 3. So, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, some take this to mean that humans can only live to 120 years post-flood. So, you know, here we have before the flood, people can live really long after the flood. So this is like not a natural science thing. Perhaps it's just a miraculous God just changes us. We can't live as long. The death 
you know, process in humans is triggered earlier. Now, my own reading of this is actually, I will give you a, my clear answer on this. This is not about the ages of mankind, that we can't live past 120 years. I even heard a pastor once saying that there was like, the, I don't know, this Romanian woman or something, someone who said they were 123 or something like that. And they were like, that's a lie. You can't live past 120. But the truth is, even in Genesis 6, after the flood, people, plenty of people live after 120 years. They still do. But the ages get shorter and shorter. They do. Um, so I think this is about 120 years till the flood. Till the flood in this passage. Now, what are their alternate views of Genesis 5? One alternate view is that this is based on a different numbering system than we have. Um, and there is truly some credibility to this. Okay, the numbers tend to be multiples of six here. And this is not about the Antichrist. Okay, don't read that everywhere in the Bible. <laughs> but in Genesis uh, chapter five, we have a lot of multiples of six, where it's six. Um, let me read some of the numbers to us here. So, um, oh gosh, I'm going to have to, I, I'm actually not going to be able to do all the math in my brain here. I think it's multiples of six is the thing. Anyways, this argument, <laughs> I'm totally being caught off guard here because I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that the, am I getting the right math, the right math here? I hope I am. It, it, I think it's the six is the sexadecimal system. So we, we, we go off of like, we count to 10 and then we reset 10. Then we go 11, 12, 13, right? 20, 21, 22. They would have gone. The theory is something like six and then reset. I think it's at six. I think it is at any rate. So many of these numbers, these ages round to six that people are thinking there's something else going on here. One theory is these are actually um, not how old they were. This is somehow like a different way of messaging. There's something here intentionally. They're blowing up the ages to teach us something specific and it relates to the numbers. I've never heard a theory as to what they're teaching though. So this seems like a non-starter. It's like, well, there's, there's, we're noticing a pattern here, but we're not going to tell you what it means. So that feels like an insufficient explanation. Perhaps someone has more details on it that I haven't heard. I've never heard a, a good follow-up with that observation. Other people say, oh, it's the months. These are not years, they're months. The problem with that is that some people have a kid, if these are months, they have a kid at a young enough age that it wouldn't work, right? You can't have a kid that young. So the months thing doesn't seem to work. Others would just say, this is part of the way that they recorded ancient genealogies. They would blow up the years. And, and, and I'm not saying any of these views are mine. I don't know the right view. They would blow up the years intentionally, make them in very large numbers. But everybody, this isn't, this wasn't lying because everybody knew they were doing it. And it was intentional. It was like um, a type of, of known hyperbole, right? Hyperbole that's known. Everybody knows you're being hyperbolic. That's not lying. When nobody knows, that's when it's being deceitful. And so this would be like a known hyperbole thing. I don't know the right view. I just don't know. I just, I'm not sure. <laughs> so there's, there's a few thoughts for you. I hope, I hope that that provides you with some help on that topic. I'm sorry. I can't find, you know, answer the debate for you on this. Um, yeah. Adam Duarte says, hi, Pastor Mike. I was speaking with Orthodox Christian friends on tradition and they said, John 21, Verses 24 through 25 was the best example of the Bible creating oral tradition as authoritative as itself. Thoughts? All right, let's check this out. Uh, John 21, verses 24 and 25. 
Now, I don't know a terribly lot about orthodox beliefs. I know a little bit, but not as much as I'd like to know to be able to talk about them. But we can address this passage. So John 21, 24, and 25, it says, This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now their interpretation, at least I'll take Adam's um presentation of how this comes out the interpretation is that this is quote the best example of the bible creating oral tradition as authoritative as itself so what we all believe about the bible catholic to my knowledge orthodox with with a capital o orthodox as well as myself and pretty much every christian just about every christian is that the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit directly. And so you couldn't be viewing this passage as oral tradition in the Roman Catholic or Orthodox sense. You couldn't really be viewing this passage as oral tradition because it's not. This, this would be written, inspired scripture. So where's the tradition that's being created here? I'm trying to, I'm struggling to understand how the argument works. The Bible's creating oral tradition is authoritative. It just says here that Jesus said and did many things that were not written. That's absolutely true. And and you didn't need scripture to tell you this, right? Like you realize Jesus existed and did things beyond what was written in the text of scripture and said stuff. Like you don't need the Bible to tell you that. So the issue isn't, did Jesus do other things? Or were the other things he did authoritative if we know them? The question is, of all that we have in our church writings and church history, what can we be confident was, was Jesus? and was led by the spirit to be written that we all agree is scripture. Um, <clears throat> I don't even see an argument for tradition here. I, I would just honestly, what I would do, Adam with your friend here <clears throat> or your friends is push them with questions, make them really, really unpack this argument that just cause Jesus said other things that that means that the Orthodox church knows what those things are and, and, uh, and that they are authoritative and that they are in that sense, tradition. Um, the early church really cared about the stuff that really came from Jesus and really came from the apostles. And if it didn't come from them directly, then they put it on a different category, a different pedestal than they did scripture. And that's not the case with the Orthodox or Roman Catholic views. Just, just historically, it's just not the case. So I'm sorry, I can't be of more help, but in a sense, it's just because that verse doesn't do anything to help arguments about oral tradition. Um, Oral tradition depends on a lot more than just the idea that Jesus said stuff in the past that we didn't have written down. Oral tradition depends on the idea that Jesus said it, it didn't get written down, it didn't get communicated in the epistles, it was only, communi only communicated separately from all of the New Testament, and then it was carried by these sort of like um, special truth tradition holders and then the the orthodox and the roman catholic are going to disagree on who gets to do that but they both have clearly historically have doctrinal developments that do not trace back to jesus for the bible i know they'll argue with you on that but i've done a lot of historical reading on this stuff just just to be sure like the idea that marriage is a sacrament which is something that we have in orthodox and roman catholic views is not in scripture nor in history until much later and they could try to find a quote from a guy, but especially Roman Catholicism is weak on this point because they claim it was taught by Jesus and the apostles and it was unanimously known by the church fathers. They claim that in their authoritative like council documents, right? Vatican I, right? They're saying 
marriage as a sacrament was known, all the sacraments, and taught and universally known amongst the church fathers. Well, they were obviously writing for an audience that didn't read the church fathers because that's just not rea not reality. Uh, there's a video on that one day I'll be doing. Don't ask me when. <laughs> Ten years from now, I don't know. Um, all right, so Tony Grabowski says, are Mark 13 and Revelation 6 describing the same event? Let's just look at them, okay? You gave specific verses. We'll look at those. Mark 13, verse 24 through 27. I just taught through this, but let's look at it. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And they, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the, uh, from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So this is, a, I think, you guys have already taught on this recently, but this is the second coming. We're talking about the second coming here at the end of this tribulation time when Jesus returns and all that stuff goes down. Um, so is Revelation six talking about the same thing? Let's look at that passage. Revelation six. 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as, fi as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Okay, let's just acknowledge the, the parallels we've already got, right? Okay, so opening the sixth seal, this is something that's happening in this tribulation time. I think that much seems clear that... Um, what Jesus talks about here, I think most people would, I mean, of various different eschatology perspectives, they would agree that what Jesus talks about in those verses in Mark and this uh, are talking about the same time period. And um, so there's a great earthquake, a particularly great earthquake. The sun's black as sackcloth, the moon like blood. That's the cosmic signs Jesus talks about in Mark 13. The stars from sky fall to earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. That's the same stuff Jesus talks about just in different words and detail. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Um, so we have even more details here. Um, Jesus does vaguely just mention signs. I, I think it might be in Luke or Matthew where he just mentioned signs in the heavens, right? That they'll just be signs. And so this could be including in that. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich ones and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. So my short answer is this. Yes, clearly it seems Revelation 6 and Mark 13 are connected. What's not totally clear is, and it is to some people, I get that, but it's not totally clear to me, is whether Revelation, I lean one way, but I lean, just it's just a lean thing. Uh, whether Revelation, where you have the trumpets and the bulls and the seals, you have them not in that order, you have all those things, whether they're happening sort of layered on top of each other in some fashion, right? Where, where it could just be total repetition, like there's like these seven and these seven and these seven, they kind of happen all at once. Or as you read the passage, you know, you, you think, oh, no, no, the, the, the last of the first, you know, the first set of seven leads to the next set of seven, which leads to the next set of seven. How exactly is the chronology of all that playing out? And that is the thing that I'm not quite certain on. I lean towards more chronological, you know, each one, they open a seal and it leads to the next set of seven. I get that. But, um, but some of them have very similar effects. And so then it makes you wonder if it is replaying, restating some of the previous things. And so the timing of it is a little up in the air in my mind.
Let's look at number six. Hi, Pastor Mike. Um, <laughs> that's actually your username. That's funny. <laughs> hi. Hi, hi, Pastor Mike. Um, how do we determine the difference between text in the Bible that only relates to the cultural context of the time versus text that is transcultural and relevant for all time? So this is a great question. And I think that what we have to do is um, realize that when de we're dealing with works of literature and works of different genres, there are, it's hard to make these hard and fast rules that you can just always apply. And so it's hard to say things like you just, if it, the Bible says to do it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. But the Bible's often not telling you to do it. In fact, more, more often than not, when it's instructing something, you have to stop and go, who's it, who's it talking to and all that. So there's the basic job of just you and me just reading the text and asking, who is it for? Like who's, who is being told these things, right? I, I know that for instance, the law, the instructions of the law to Israel, I know I'm not under the law. So when I read an instruction in the law to Israel, I just know I'm not under the law, right? But I also know I'm not free from all moral requirements from God. And so I read, you read Fuller in the scripture and you realize that you do, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery. These things are still commands. But as far as laying out, say, the, the punishments of the law, like I, I, it's, it's crazy how often uh, it's usually non-believers. They want us like, why don't you stone these, this group of people? Why don't you kill that group of people? And usually they distort what the text even says in the first place. But, but so often they're like, like, do you read Acts 15, you know, <laughs> like read the scripture, read the Bible and realize that a consistent Christian is not under the law and is not going to just read those things and do them. Um, so the best thing you can do is just read the, read the passage in context and then ask yourself first this, don't assume it applies to you with an instruction, instruction for you right now today. Like it might, it might not. It might just be a truth to know. It might just be a lesson to learn from. It might be an example that you could understand. So don't assume that because sometimes what we do is we read a scripture and we immediately go to application. We skip interpretation, right? I read out, uh, and Judas went and hanged himself. And then I say to somebody, what do you think that means? And they go, oh, well, that means that, you know, no matter how low you are, don't give up. You know, suicide's never the answer. And I go, those are true things. Those are good, true things. That's not what it means, right? <laughs> like, what does it mean? It means that Ju Judas went and he hanged himself. Like, that's what it means. That's just, that's the interpretation. So start with interpretation. Understand the passage first as it applied to its original audience. Then understand it in context of how universal. Is it prescriptive? It's just giving us instructions on how we're all to live or is it descriptive? It's just talking about what they did in the past. It sounds complicated until you just take a passage and read it, right? You just take a passage and read it. Um, th this stuff is not that hard if we take the Bible seriously instead of just taking it like a, it's a source for our proof texting to, to make sermon points, right? Forgive me. I'm not trying to harp on anybody here. Um, but when I read the scripture and I read about the apostles, let me give you an example. There was a season in my life when I heard a pastor who said that he would read the gospels. He would read like, say, Matthew. And every every day he's reading in Matthew and whatever happens in that passage, he would go out and he would try to do that that day. So this sounds very pious. Like, I mean, it sounds like, wow, what faith, what what a what an exciting thing to do. Maybe I'll do that, you know. So you open your, your Bible and you look at Matthew and he's like, um, come follow me. And they left their jobs and left their nets and followed him. So that day you're like, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to just go, go around doing ministry today. And then you read on and Jesus is like, go out two by two. And, and they go into all the towns and they 
start witnessing. And then so you're like, I'm going to go door to door witnessing today. And then you, and then you read, Jesus gives another instruction and you go to follow that one and you go to follow that one. But this may sound exciting, but this is dangerous. Jesus, the lesson is Jesus did this for them for various reasons. They're not instructions to you. Yeah, you should come follow Jesus, but it's not going to look the same as them leaving their nets and following Christ, leaving their jobs. So every every Christian quits their job now. That's just what it means to follow Christ. But no, that's not what it that's not what it means to follow Christ. How how then are there instructions in, in Ephesians that employees, right, or or it really slaves, right? But but they are they're employed, right? That they are to, I mean, employed whether they like it or not, but they are to uh, work hard for the Lord in their current positions, in their jobs. Right? That wouldn't make sense. Right? Whatever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord. That idea it only works if Christians aren't all called to leave their nets and follow Jesus. So we we can't rush to inter- to application. We have to start with interpretation, seed in context. The the best place to go for direct application in your life is probably the epistles. If you're just looking, I just want instructions on how I'm supposed to live. There's these general epistle writings, like in Ephesians, when he talks about walk in the spirit, you know, when he describes putting on the armor of God, these are direct to you stuff. The gospels aren't necessarily direct to you, right? There are passages where they are and passages where they're not. So read it thoughtfully, read it carefully, interpret it first, apply it second. Uh, Those are my thoughts. The Bible, you could read it like a newspaper. If you open a newspaper and you and you hit um, the funnies, uh, I haven't read a newspaper in a long time. <laughs> if you open a newspaper and you hit like the the comics section, you know what genre, what what place you are in the text. Right? If you open to Ecclesiastes, you know this is this is not the same as Ephesians. Um, you you open to the po- political commentary. If you open to like you know what's going on with agriculture or something like that, you know you you know where you're at and you read it with that in mind. And the same thing with the Bible. Um, let's see, Luis or Louise, Louise Sorensen says, greetings from Denmark. When the restrainer is removed, will non-believers lose their compassion and morals? See, uh, second Thessalonians two verses six and seven. Interestingly, we just read this. So let's just look at it again. Um, it says, and you know, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So this is a very cryptic passage, is it not? Like, obviously, the Thessalonians knew what was restraining him. Him is the man of sin, the Antichrist, who's restraining him. Um, do we know everything they knew? I, I don't, I'm not sure uh, what the restrainer is. Now that often teaching I've heard would say the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church. And that's why it's a he, it's masculine because the church is always called a, a, a female or feminized, right? Uh, in the, in the analogy of the bride of Christ, right? We're the bride and then he's Christ. So we're feminized. The church is, 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 is a girl in that analogy, but here it's a he that's restraining. So if some think that this is the rapture and we're going to be raptured out and that's when the restraining stops. We, we, the church are restraining the wicked one. We're holding back through our faith and our lives of obedience and our preaching. We're holding back the work of the antichrist. And when we get pulled out and so they say, okay, the heathen is the Holy spirit. Cause you can give the male gender to the Holy spirit more easily. Um, but this of course, isn't what the text teaches us. It works with the text. Here's a, here's a Bible too. It realize when this happens, it works with the text, meaning that could be the case, but it's not what it's clearly teaching. So I'm not going to put a ton of weight on it, right? Like that may be right, but I'm
but I need other reasons to think that that has to be the case. Others would say that the one who's restraining, um, the, so the preterist or the partial preterist, um, the one who's thinking that most of this stuff will happen in 70 AD, they're still waiting on Christ to return, but they think that in 70 AD, most of this stuff happened. They think that perhaps this restrainer was, um, was his name Galba? I think it was. There was this Roman um, Caesar who came before um, Nero. And when he died, right, when he was taken out of the way, that's when Nero took over and he started persecuting the church really heavily. So the Thessalonians on this theory, the Thessalonians know it's Galba is the one restraining it. When he dies, the persecution is going to start. But again, while that kind of works, it doesn't, the text doesn't say that. Like there's nothing in the text that forces you to think this is Galba, right? In fact, if you notice, it depends on what the Thessalonians already know. They know what's restraining. But you don't, like I don't. So I'm not really sure what to do with this passage. Perhaps it'll make more sense when the day comes, when there's a future time that comes. I don't know. I mean, here's a case that there was something orally that they knew about that we don't know about today. And I'd love to know what it is. But um, but if, if the Orthodox Church wants to claim that that's how they can bring in all their baptism rituals and their patriarchy stuff and all these things, it's like, no, guys, that doesn't, that's not, that's, that, that's not from oral tradition truly from the apostles. This comes from later things. I'm answering a separate question again, going back. But, um, but yeah, what's the mystery of lawlessness? Um, well, who's he who restrains? This is a puzzling passage to me, and I'd love to know. Um, and I'm sure in the comments, I'll see people going, Mike, how could you, how dare you not know what that means? Obviously, it means this. And I'll be like, well, make your case. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, if you want to pretend that there's no way someone could be confused about the meaning of that passage, then you're living in la-la land, right? As Christians, let's not act like our conclusions are always obvious to everybody about every passage of scripture that just creates division. Let's take the next one. Um, Silas Abrahamson says, are you ever shaken by why there are brilliant philosophers of religion like Graham Oppie who are atheist? I sometimes feel like I must be missing out or missing something. Um, Silas, I used to be. I used to be shaken by that. Um, I think that what happens is when we don't understand an issue, we tend to look for people who we respect that, that we feel like they do understand it. And then we may not really get all their explanations, but we respect, and this isn't a bad thing, right? We, we respect them enough to go, um, I'm trusting your judgment here. And when you see somebody who looks like they have good judgment and looks brilliant and well-informed on an issue and they have a conclusion that's different than you, it's totally natural to be like, wait, what if I'm wrong and I, I don't know what's going on here? Let me just say this to start off with. It's, if nothing else, it's at least a tie. It's at least a tie because there are brilliant and right, Graham Oppie is not an internet atheist. He's a brilliant philosopher, highly respected. Um, he's not, and I, I'm sorry, if, if you're an atheist on the internet, um, the the stereotype that you th you have of Christians, that we're all just these ignorant people who don't even know our own Bible and we're just, we're just fundies who don't really think deeply about things. Um, that's how ph philosophers who are atheists often think about internet atheists, actually. Um, so... <clears throat> That's the reality of the situation. But you get guys like Graham Oppie. Now, why is it that I'm not stumbled anymore by this? Why does this not bother me that there's like a brilliant, brilliant man, much smarter than me, who um, who is 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 an atheist? I'll give you a few reasons. Um, Graham Oppie, to take him as an example, he, to my knowledge, is not the kind of atheist that you're thinking of. 
when you say, when most of us say like atheists, um, he actually thinks there are respectable arguments for God's existence. He just doesn't agree with them. In fact, I listened to a debate between Grandma Oppie and I think it was Ed, was it Ed Fezzer? Anyways, it was, it was on the ontological argument. I think it was Grandma Oppie and Ed Fezzer. I could be wrong here. Um, maybe someone could correct me if you know the debate I'm talking about. It was on uh, Capturing Christianity on his channel. So in this debate, it was really interesting as you listen to it. You would, you would, most of us would listen and be like, I only understood like 8% of that. And that's fine. I don't mind listening when I don't understand all of a thing. I, I just, that's kind of how I learn. You just keep listening, even though you don't quite get it all. But what was really interesting was how Graham Oppie says, you know, at the end of the day, and I'll summarize, I'll paraphrase for him. You can see the debate yourself, but he basically says, look, you know, at the end of the day, um, I have an intuition against God and you have an intuition towards God and that's that, right? Like that's, that's it. Like that's ultimately why I'm going to land on the atheist side. It's not because my arguments are better or stronger. It's because I have an intuition one way and you have an intuition the other way, which is really trippy because it means that him, this high up philosopher wasn't like, I have these solid reasons why this is absolutely the case. Not that he doesn't try to marshal those arguments, but that he thinks the deciding factor is your intuitions. Now, what's really trippy here is on an atheist worldview, I don't think your intuitions are all that all that trust trustworthy, okay? But on a Christian worldview, when you look at this through the lens of Christianity and you interpret if Graham Oppie's correct in his conclusion there, then it would mean that there are people who have issues that are other than the argumentation, which are causing them to decide for God or against God. And that would be consistent with a relational choice about God that underneath a lot of our argumentation is ultimately not just a bias, but a potentially a relational decision we're making about God. And that, that's my interpretation of how I would do that. So what I'm saying is this, no matter how smart you are, you're stupid compared to God. And you may be still ultimately finally driven by things other than the intellect, other than the mind, things that relate to the heart. These things may ultimately be deciding where you land on these issues. Jesus kind of hints at this um, when he says, let me see if I can find this passage. Um, oh, where Jesus says uh, that if anyone desires to know the truth, I'm paraphrasing here, I, I can't remember the exact words. If anyone desires to know the truth, then then uh, then he'll come to me. If anyone wants the truth, he's going to come to me, which is a really bold statement. But it would be consistent with this observation that there's like something else inside of us that we're not really that well at that good at identifying. Um, yeah, so in, in the end, it's it's worst case scenario, there's a tie along the evidence. Now, on the other hand, you have a brilliant guy like, say, Alvin Plantinga, who his statement about the non-believer, the atheist is, look, now that was Graham Oppie's view. I'm taking if he's right, okay, because you mentioned Graham Oppie. Um, but Alvin Plantinga, another brilliant theist, he's he would say he's right up there with Graham Oppie as far as clout and all that kind of stuff philosophically. But he would say that the reason why atheists seem to be turning from God is because something's wrong in their reasoning abilities. Like something's wrong with their thinking. And I, I laughed a little bit. I don't mean it to be rude. It's just crazy to hear this high-level conversations taking place. And I go, this is like totally consistent with basic Christian theology in my view. Um, yeah. Yeah. So don't be intimidated because smart people disagree. Um, if every smart person disagrees with you, then that should make you wonder. <laughs> but, um, but yeah.
yeah, then there's other other issues that go on. Knowledge puffs up. Uh, things can cause arrogance. When you feel like you know a lot about something, you can get arrogant and proud and all those types of things. So Silas, I hope that helps, man. I hope that helps. Let me put it this way to you finally in the end. I think it's ridiculously obvious that God exists. I sincerely believe this. Like, really, I believe it. And it's possible that some of the really smart guys are just really good at talking themselves into believing all kinds of weird things. But it seems obvious that God exists, painfully obvious and wonderfully obvious. <laughs> and, um, and then the consistency, the evidence for Christianity, I think is so heavy and so strong. And then the complaints against it are usually nitpicky or misrepresentation. They usually they fall into one of those two categories. This is nitpicky or it's misrepresentation. And so I look at that and I go, look, I'm convinced. Now, should I, with evidence and reason at my side and my life experience in Christ, should I ditch my faith because smart guy over here disagrees with me when there's another smart guy that disagrees with them and agrees with me? Like, nah, it's not a good reason to ditch your faith or to doubt. Uh, faith Marie has a question. Hi, Pastor Mike. Love your content. I was wondering what is a good alternative to the sinner's prayer? How should we lead someone in, to salvation? Um, I, I take a very personal approach to this uh, faith. I, I think that we um, we talk to somebody, we find out where they're at, and you respond. If you're going to lead them in a prayer, which is I'm totally cool with leading them in a prayer, or if you think um, I, they need to pray, like I hope the Lord will guide and lead me in that very moment as I'm witnessing to that person, that he will give me wisdom and discernment. And so I don't have a cookie cutter approach. Sometimes I've asked people, I want you know you to pray, or I will pray with them or I don't pray because I send them away with this weighing on them because I realize that they, they're not, they're not actually making a decision and I don't want to give them false assurance of salvation when they haven't really made a choice for Christ yet. So I just, I leave it up and I don't think God is needing us to use a perfect formula. I think he needs a heart to turn to Christ, right? We're turning from sin to trust in Jesus Christ. And if that's going on, then the formula of the prayer is less important. So... There's my thought on that. Solomon Dahlberg says on Molinism, you're getting some deep questions today, man. <laughs> Graham Oppie and apologetics and the Kalam and then Molinism. Okay, on Molinism or your soteriology, like I'll explain what that is in a second, guys. Is people's choice to believe only dependent upon the circumstances God placed them in? If so, why does, doesn't God make circumstances that makes everyone believe? Um, okay, so Solomon, uh, to my best understanding, what you've described is determinism, not Molinism. Um, determinism that in this case is determined by environmental factors. So uh, Molinism is the idea. It takes two things to put them together. Uh, one is the idea that God knows all the what ifs. Okay. So to use an analogy from a recently popular film, um, we have um, uh, Dr. Strange in, in, uh, in, in Avengers, one of the movies, Infinity War, is it? where he like surfs in his head, he surfs all these different possible futures. Now in all those possible futures he's looking at, everybody's actually making real choices and their choices are affecting each other, but they're all genuinely making choices, right? And he finds the one reality where it would result in the defeat of Thanos and the saving the people. And that one reality actually ends up getting really bad before it gets good. It's really interesting because there's as, as much as you might be like, well, that's that's so not Christian, some of this content. Well, I, I look at it personally as just fabricated entertainment. I don't think it's actually presenting any sort of teaching on these things. But uh, but some would, and I could understand how you'd have a problem with it. But what's interesting, though, is that 
Molinism is kind of like that. God is able to see all the what ifs of the universe. He is then able to set things up in such a way that even free will choices will lead to a predetermined end. But there are there are free will choices, right? Like Tony Stark still chose to give himself, right? But it was still a decision. Now that that's the missing element in what you're suggesting here. So let's say that God knew. Um, if he made the world just the way it was that I would come to Christ, that somebody else wouldn't come to Christ. He knew that. But he was also balancing not just the two of us and whether we can, he's balancing all factors of reality. That's the idea of Molinism. Because he's balancing all these factors, it can explain a lot of why things are the way they are, including why they often get really bad before they finally get good. Um, on that, I'll read your question again and explain why your question isn't really about Molinism. Um, so on my view of salvation, are people's choices to believe only dependent upon the circumstances God placed them in? If so, and my answer is no, they're not. But if so, why doesn't God make circumstances that make everyone believe? I don't think your choice to believe is only based on circumstance. I think you actually are a determiner of your decisions. You might be influenced by outside factors, right? But you do make a choice. So already the answer is going to be no. Uh, now, why doesn't God make circumstances that make everyone believe? A, because I don't think that's how free will works. Where you can just put everyone in a certain circumstance they all believe. B, um, I don't think that, um, and this, this would be the, the Molinist response on this, which I lean towards Molinism, that view. Um, B, the issue here is that God, if he was to create a situation where, say, uh, they're able to beat Thanos, he can't stop Iron Man from dying. That there's going to be cost and effect in every choice that's made. However, he makes the world, it's going to affect one person one way, another person another way. And so there's going to be a balancing act. I think the important thing is here that he he does ensure each of us has a free will decision we make, right? And so that's part of how I'd answer that question. I'm sure you'd have follow-up stuff, Solomon. This stuff gets really, really deep. And it's not like an area I'm an expert on. It's just Something I do care about and have thought about. Um, Christy Quartz says, A friend of mine points to the law on women and rape in Deuteronomy 22 as an example of flawed teaching in the Bible. How should we understand this verse? Deuteronomy 22. This is an, uh, a passage I really wanted to do like a deep dive on sometime. Um, let me give you my quick thought on it. And I'll probably share with you in a couple different translations here because I want people to understand. Um, let me get to the NIV. All right. Okay. So if here's ESV. If there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry out, cry for help, though she was in the city and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay. So she's betrothed. And here's the little background stuff. Um, this is actually not the passage I was thinking it was going to be, but um, there's some background things. She's betrothed, which means that she's like considered the wife in a sense, right? The promise is there. They're going to get married. They're engaged to be married, so to speak, but this is going to happen. They're going to be married, but they have not been together yet. She's a virgin, right? She's betrothed, but she's a virgin. So they're not, not married yet. The man meets her in the city and lies with her. The nature of being in the city is that she is consenting. This is this is the subtext behind Deuteronomy 22. There's two scenarios given. One is if the woman's consenting. The other one is if she's not consenting. So let me read them now. Notice this. It's going to give you two scenarios. The first one I just read, right? If he meets her in the city and lies with her, 
then you're going to stone them, right? Because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city. The idea of being in the city is people with an earshot, they would have heard her and then they would have come to her aid, right? If she was screaming for help. And so the only issue here is they were both willing partners in the sin. Then verse 25 gives you the other alternative option. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who's betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense punishable by death for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Here, rape is compared to murder because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Okay. Let me um, share a couple thoughts on this. If she's consenting in violating her betrothal and sleeping with a man, uh, they're both going to be stoned. This is because Israel has made a covenant, a promise to walk holy with God. And so they have the consequences of unholiness happening governmentally in their, in their um, community. That is not a bad thing. The problem is it's somewhat of an impossible thing, right? This is the yoke of the law that condemns us all to death. Jesus brings us forgiveness and grace. Um, he is the one who sets us free from the condemnation of the law. We're all ultimately condemned, okay? So if you want to be like, she doesn't deserve that, just sleeping with somebody else other than the person you're you know, engaged to, you don't deserve to die. I'm going to argue, yeah, we do. We just can't take it because we're all so wicked. And God in his grace, he saves us from that. No, we're not under the law. The law was there to show us how bad sin was. It really is that bad. But Jesus delivers us from that and gives us the forgiveness and grace we can have. Now, why is it that her crying out is the issue though? So you're saying if she's in the city, now I've heard some people put it this way, and the man muzzles her. So if she's in the city and the man muzzles her, or if she's if she's mute, she can't scream. And I actually heard a skeptic say this once. If a mute woman is in the city, and she's raped, but she couldn't scream. And so now you stone her along with the man. And I just want to ask you, like, do you think the people reading this text are that stupid? <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's like sometimes skeptics want to take the stupidest approach to the Bible you can possibly find. And I know that might sound offensive. I just want you to understand how crazy it is. Anybody reading these two things realizes the common factor is the willingness of the woman. Right. And what it does is it gives the benefit of the doubt if she's outside the city. Right. And she's like, I didn't want that. You just trust her. If she's within the city and you have reason to think she could have cried out, you have reason to think she could have stopped this. You have reason to think that she was willing. Then she's going to be punished as though she was willing, um, as though she intentionally violated her betrothal to this other man. What's interesting about scripture here is that the woman does not get killed if she was not a willing participant. And the man does, even in that scenario. And it's it's treated like murder. It's treated like murder. Um, and so we don't have this sort of unbiased or biased thing where the woman is just like chattel or something like that. In fact, it says she's done nothing wrong. So in their culture, if you had been, if you'd lost your virginity because you were raped, if you're taking scripture seriously, you might be like, well, in their culture, you're worth nothing because you lost your virginity. It's like she lost her virginity because she was raped. It's she's done nothing wrong. She's done nothing wrong, it says. She's committed no offense punishable by death. There's how I would answer that question. Um, that one's actually an, an easier passage, in my opinion. Um, unless, let me see real quick. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, there's, there's another passage that's actually kind of more challenging that we'll talk about it when it comes up one day. But yeah, let's look at the next question from... 
the Christian metalhead who says, Hey, Mike, my question is, why is Esther in the Bible? I see no moral purpose, no mention of God anywhere. And the last two chapters have dangerous implications. God bless your family and ministry. Um, that's an interesting question. You know, there was actually rabbinic debate on the topic of Esther being in the Bible, like way back in the day. And part of the issue there is it doesn't mention God. Like you said, this is one of the issues that they brought up. Um, so my, my thought is this is really simple. Um, first, let me establish one principle. Whether I know why it's there or not, it is there. So we have an, a, an established Old Testament in the time of Jesus, and Jesus affirms it, affirms the law, the prophets, and the writings, so that Esther is part of that, that Jesus is affirming. God has given us Esther as his word. I would actually have a bigger question personally, is like, why is Ecclesiastes in there, <laughs> you know, or something? And uh, and yet it does have its purpose. Now, you may feel its purpose is... is is questionable to you. But what I see in the book of Esther, among other things, is God preserving uh, his people of Israel, even through hardship and hard times. And we also see some interesting parallels going on with um, Haman and with the, with the bad guy and all that. And um, Christ and the Antichrist and those types of things. We, we see some very interesting things going on there. There's a lot of like literary stuff. Esther's, if you look at it through the lens of literary, like how God literarily constructs typology and things like that, then I think the Esther becomes more interesting to you. But I think the part you're, you're probably worried about, I'm just guessing here, the dangerous implications are the part where there's like a battle in Esther, where, um, they're going to be killing the Jews. They're going to go through, and the rule is, it's like the the purge, right? Which is a movie I haven't seen, but you don't have to see it to know what it is, All right? So the idea is that the the Jews are um, are victims to be had freely during this little season in in the in the empire. Now they're not in Israel at this time. They're outside of Israel. They're they're captive in a foreign land, and the king's like, yeah, take what you want from the Jews. We don't like the Jews, and you can go to their homes and you can steal their stuff, and then. Um, the way the decrees and the laws work, they can't undo this law. Esther goes to the king and says, hey, um, this is this is a horrible thing that's happening. Long story short, the king says, okay. And he writes an additional law that says that the Jews can arm themselves and they can defend themselves. And then they do. So when people do come to immorally attack and steal their stuff and kill them, they defend themselves and they end up having victory. I don't know why that's dangerous. I don't think self-defense is a sin. And I'm not a pacifist. And I don't think scripture calls me to be one either. This doesn't mean, like there's these extremes. Total pacifism, which I think ends up causing us to um, drop our moral responsibility to protect the weak and defend the, our loved ones. Um, I think that that pacifism is, is of that kind, is, is, uh, is sinful. And then we have on the other side of the spectrum, we have the person who's like, break into my house, you're going out dead. I'm going to kill you. You're not, you, you know, you'll make sure you die. You try to run away, I'll drag you back in and shoot you. And I'm like, this is wicked. Like, this is just delighting in um, harm. This isn't about self-defense. This is about punishing those who hurt you, right? And so to me, these are like the extremes. And I want to I want to walk in realizing that perhaps like Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to kill. There is a time, Right. Most of us will not enter that time in our entire lives. And uh, it's not about revenge or vengeance. It's about protection and and justice and doing the right thing at the right time. So um, I, I think that that's the right move. Um, you know, I, as, a, as a youth pastor, I would answer this question all the time about students going like, what if somebody's bullying me? As a Christian, I want to turn the other cheek. And I would say, yes, turn the other cheek, you know, turn the other cheek. But this doesn't mean 
if they hit you, you turn the other cheek, and they hit you again, and you turn the other cheek, and they keep hitting you, and they hit you a thousand times, and they give you brain damage and a broken jaw, you just keep turning the other cheek. I don't think that's our command. I don't think it is. I think that there's a place for self-defense. I think turning the other cheek is our posture. But if the if the attack continues, then we can defend ourselves. Now, if it's coming from government or coming because of your per, you're being persecuted for the name of Christ, I think we need to be even more careful about this. And there's a time, especially as led by the Spirit, that you just lay your life down as a martyr. Okay, but but admittedly, life is complicated, and our various situations need to need to be need to be handled individually and with wisdom and grace and the leading of the Spirit. I think they did the right thing defending themselves. And I don't find that passage in Esther to be problematic for me anyways. Uh, Kenneth Pate, or Pate, uh, Pate probably? I doubt your last name is Pate. Sorry, people probably do that the other time. A friend who is recent, a recent Christian hasn't chosen to be baptized yet. He seems to not understand the importance of baptism. How can I explain the importance of baptism without being pushy? Ultimately, it's his decision. Um, I think just give him scripture. is probably the best um, thing to do is just give him scripture. Let me share some scripture with you guys to give him. Um, let me see here. Um, okay, we've got Acts 2.38. What did... Um, oh. Let me just get it up. Sorry. Acts 2.38. Um, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, I don't think baptism saves in this passage. I have a whole thing I've taught on that. But, but the point is that it is a command for those who believe in Jesus. So I just would read this to him and say, look, this is, this is what the apostles taught. They taught people to get baptized. This was assumed in, uh, in Hebrews 5. It talks about the doctrines of baptisms or washings that this is something that was taught it was basics this is christianity 101 i would go to um let's see other places even in acts and um acts 8 30 um hold on let me get there uh philip <clears throat> opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture he told him the good news about jesus this is philip t talking to the ethiopian eunuch right he just he just hears about jesus and look at how quickly he gets baptized as they were going along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said see here is water what prevents me from being baptized and so then they immediately go down and philip gets baptized this is like the first response you don't need a six-month believers course before you get baptized like you just don't like this is not i don't think this is a biblical thing i think christians should get baptized sooner rather than later when they put their faith and trust in Christ. And if you're like, well, I want to wait and make sure that I really know that they know that, well, that's not what scripture did. And that's not what the, the, the apostles did, man. You get saved, you get baptized. Go get baptized. If you guys have not been baptized, you've been a Christian for 15 years and you're embarrassed that you haven't been baptized, you should not be so embarrassed for your reputation. You should just be like, why on earth have I not done this glorious thing? Let's go get it done. And then be an example to others that it's a good thing to do. So th those are some of the things I would share with them. There's no reason not to get baptized. Let me let me repeat the question that the the Ethiopian eunuch, he's excited to follow Jesus. He goes, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's the thing I would ask your friend. What is preventing you from being baptized? Right? If this if nothing prevented him, what was what's preventing you? Uh, Derek Beeler says, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? And how in general would you counsel someone who's in that season? Um, great question. So I think wait on the Lord is an active waiting. It's an active waiting. Um, 
Psalm 37 is very much about waiting on the Lord. And it's, of course, not written directly about your life today kind of thing, but there's application to your life. And notice what it says. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And then he'll exalt you to inherit the land. This is because if you're you're the Jewish people, you are promised this land. Now we're promised an, a, a bigger land, eternal glory in, in heaven, right? And, and the kingdom of Christ. And so wait on the Lord and he will exalt you to inherit that ultimate land. That's true. But wait on the Lord and keep his way. I think that keeping his way is a old school way of saying, do the right thing that God wants you to do in your life. Just keep doing the right thing. Don't compromise and do wicked things to try to like accomplish your goals. You just do the right thing, serve Jesus in your life, follow Christ, abide in Christ, do live a holy, righteous life before God. And that's how you wait on God. You don't wait on God by twiddling your thumbs. You wait on God by being actively seeking his kingdom and living for him in this world. And then he will accomplish his purposes in the long run. That's that's how we wait. Our waiting is not sitting around. Our waiting is active, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all that stuff is added. That's how I would define waiting. And my counsel to them, to someone who's in a season of waiting, um, would be, be faithful to Jesus in the obvious things in your life. If, you know, if, if, if you were to look around at your life right now and say, what is, what obviously needs to change if I'm going to really be following Jesus, go change that. That's waiting on the Lord. Keys of the kingdom says, can you speak to how to tell the difference between the spirit burdening your heart and just being obsessive about something? A friend broke contact during great pain a long time ago. And I still worry. Um, can you speak to how to tell the difference between the spirit burdening your heart and just being obsessive about something? Um, let me say this, keys of the kingdom. I think, um, let's ask two questions. Um, sorry, I think I have like an eyelash in my eyeball during a live stream, which is fantastic. So <laughs> this is burdening my heart. <laughs> um, when the Holy Spirit lays something upon your heart, it's important to know it. But if you don't know it's the Holy Spirit, that's where we more often live, okay? We more often live in the place of going, this could be me, this could be the Lord. And given how frequently this happens to me and probably to you, we need a way of handling that scenario, right? If you know it's the Lord, like you just know, and no one has to tell you because you just know it's the Lord. Like there's a, there's like an instillment of, this has been my experience. I'm speaking very pragmatically, right? In my own life, that there's just this sense of, confidence and faith it doesn't come from my desires but i feel comes from the holy spirit and i feel very confident that this is what god wants that is extremely rare more often than not i'm like lord is that me or is that you well here's where i think it's okay to just step out and somebody might say step out in faith i'm going to say step out in good works <laughs> that sounds terrible doesn't it i mean you're saved by faith don't get me wrong this isn't about salvation but when you say step out in faith, it kind of means I'm going to do this thing and just believe that God's calling me to do it. That's actually presumption. That's not just faith. That's presumption. You don't know that God's calling you to do it. But if it's a good deed, if it's a good thing, if it's a good work, then go step out and do it anyway. Because we know we're called to do good works, right? We should be zealous for good works. That's what we read about in, I think it's Titus. Be zealous for good works. So go for it, man. If there's something on your heart, and you think it's a good thing and honors Christ and honors God. And it's not about achieving your own motives. Now, if you can't tell the difference between your motives and Christ's motives, your entire life is going to be a train wreck. Um, I, this is just reality. You won't know 
you'll be leaving your spouse because you think God's giving you the perfect spouse and you just married the wrong one, right? This is a, this is the train wreck life. You'll you'll go from ministry to ministry to ministry to ministry and you'll never get settled because the moment discontent hits you, which always does, you will become discontent in your current ministry and think God's leading you to the new thing because you can't you can't tell the difference between your motives to do something where you lay Christian justifications on top of them versus that's God's kingdom and I'm going to seek it, right? Which is very simple. And that's what we want to seek. That's what I want to run for is I want to just seek God's kingdom with all my heart and life and go for it. Um, now, the situation you're talking about, can you, um, let's see, you said, is it the Holy Spirit or is it just that my heart is burdened and I'm being obsessive about something? <clears throat> Your friend broke contact during great pain a long time ago and you still worry. Um, well, is there anything wrong with reaching out and trying to restore that friendship? Is Restoration is a good godly principle. I would just say don't try, don't manipulate as you do it. If you have issues you need to confess and deal with, deal with those things. Do it in a godly and righteous way. But it it's it's not so important whether you figure out whether it's the Holy Spirit or you. Your heart is burdened and that does matter. And as long as you walk in godliness and in holiness in the next steps, I think that you're doing a good thing. So you can go for it. Um, if you want to promise that it's all going to work out, I wish, I wish, and I wish we had that. I wish I had that. But you can walk in the right and do the right thing. Keys of the kingdom. <clears throat> I know my counsel to you is insufficient today because I only know one sentence of your story. So take everything I've said with a grain of salt. Think about how it might apply to your situation and maybe get counsel from someone who knows you well in addition to what I've said. Maria Lagare says, my unborn baby has a serious birth defect. Several friends are praying for a miracle. Is it okay if we don't? I do believe God could heal that way. I'm just trying to live with what's real right now. <clears throat> Maria, I think I really understand where you're coming from. Sometimes in praying for a miracle, especially a miracle about your child, can stir up all sorts of other things, right? Where you may have to feel like you have to expect the miracle, anticipate the miracle, believe that the miracle is going to happen. Now, that's not my view. <clears throat> I want to encourage, please, somebody put in the live chat, if you can, my, my video teaching on the topic of um, uh, how correct is Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> I know that's the thumbnail. Um, and it's like it's like something about like the best word, the best word faith Bible verse you know, giving an analysis of it. So if you type those things in the search engine, you'll find it. Please watch that video, Maria. Like I went, I mean, I spent two weeks of study and prayer and preparation to teach that thing. I think it would help your situation. I hope it would. But I understand why you're saying they're praying for healing. I don't want to pray for that. It's funny because it's not that you don't want your baby healed. It's that it hurts your heart so bad to have to be going through the struggle. And it, you feel like there's some part of you that wants to be loving your child as is and accepting the situation so that you can um, not have to fight the the discontent and the bitterness that rises up. And so sometimes praying for a change situation can battle against our sense of being okay if God doesn't answer that prayer. And I, I don't know what your answer is right now, Maria. You're going through hard, crazy, difficult times. Uh, I pray God gives you wisdom. I pray the Lord helps you. I pray compassionate people come around you. They're praying for a miracle. Is it okay if you don't? That's up to you. That's up to you. Right? You've already prayed for a miracle. I'm sure you have. Your question is, do I continue to pray or... Maybe it's the Lord guiding and leading me to say, I'm going to be content with things as they are. Look, God knows 
and he's compassionate for you. He knows the hardship you're going through. If all your prayers are just groans in the spirit to God, he knows your entire heart as is in its fullness. So I, if you, if I was your pastor, if you were sitting next to me and you were like saying a lot of people are praying for my baby, I think that I need for my own heart to just start trying to seek contentment and, um, I would, I would encourage you then to go ahead and do that. And then everybody else can pray for healing and then stop asking you about it. <laughs> that would be nice too, probably. Uh, God, God bless you and give you wisdom, Maria. Melissa Heeg says, hi, Mike, what is your perspective on the application of the do not even eat with them passage when it comes to family? First Corinthians 5.11. Do you think this includes not going to family gatherings? Ooh, I'm glad you asked this question. I think it's really important. Um, my family's largely in that category of people that would fit a lot of my families in that category of people that would fit with first Corinthians five eleven, right? He says, now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now <clears throat> he doesn't mean that they've ever done those things because Paul in the same letter first Corinthians, he says that many of them used to be those things. They used to be all that stuff. He's talking about someone who has an ongoing lifestyle of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, reviling, dr being uh, drunk, uh, perpetual like drinking, swindler, all that kind of stuff. He says not to eat with such a one. He could be talking about their um, their weekly feasting. They would get together and have like regular communal meals. And so that's probably the central issue is they're not part of the fellowship. They're not part of the local church. Does that apply to Family, I don't think in any way it does. And I think we can actually demonstrate this with scripture. Look at what the Bible says to wives who have husbands that are not Christians. Right? Not Christians. And, and who, who we have no real fellowship with. They're certainly, see, non-Christians were not part of the church. They weren't to be gathered in part of this gathering. Okay, that was already the case. I mean, they can be invited to like hear about Christ, but not to be part of the fellowship. But let your, um, let me find the passage. Um, um, he says, wives, uh, oh, there it is. Uh, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Notice it's that if some, I should be careful here. It doesn't say that they don't believe. It says they don't obey the word. Um, it's possible that this refers to husbands who are ungodly, unchristlike, that this is to them as well, right? Do, if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So this means that the relationship between the wife and the husband and the husband who either is unsaved or is in active rebellion to God, this relationship should not be hurt by her Christian faith. I won't eat with you, husband. You eat over there. I'm going to eat over here. No, 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 no. Their fellowship should not end. You have a child who's active uh, homosexual lifestyle. You have a husband who is in active rebellion. They're drunkard and they're rebellion to Christ. You have a friend, a family member, a cousin, a relative who is an idolater into sorcery or whatever wicked thing. Um, you do not stop the family relationship and love. And in fact, it should be better. You should be more loving and more gracious and more kind that by your conduct, they might be one to Christ, but they cannot be part of your local church fellowship as you guys have your communion meals, as you guys have your gatherings, like that is where the line is drawn. And um, doesn't mean you can't talk to them about the Lord, spend all kinds of time with them, that sort of thing. I think the, 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 the line of communal gatherings for fellowship is important that Christians have a standard of following Jesus and that we hold to that standard. 
but we don't cut ourselves off from all other people. We just don't let them think that they're right with God as they live lives in rebellion to him. And we can do that by creating this sense of like, our church is so open that you could live any lifestyle you want and be a full member of our church, a full participant in all of our services. And you're, yet you're like, you're an alcoholic, you're, 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 you're full of all these issues. Actually, the church is supposed to say, hey, there's a line and you're crossing it. Um, so yeah, there's this is um, offensive to some, but some, some have hurt family relationships unnecessarily because I think they misunderstood this passage. Tasteful Chicken has a question. Number 18, by the way, we're almost done. How do I talk to my wife who believes in Jesus and prays in Jesus' name, amen, but doesn't read the Bible or know the true meaning and story behind Jesus Christ? Her lifestyle doesn't add up with scripture. Um, talk to her with incredible amounts of love and grace and patience. And I'm sorry, Tasteful Chicken, but I don't have like a, 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 a specific like do this. Um, I think that here, your knowledge of your wife is key. You know her very, very well. And let me ask you, don't think about what doesn't work with your wife. This is, you're going to be answering this question, not me. Think about what does work. How would I get her interested in knowing the word of God better? How would I get her to feel comfortable reading and talking about scripture with me? How would I get her more involved in whether it's church services or um, reading a book together or maybe listening to a movie or watching this or that? Like, you know her. What is the easiest way in? What's the easiest foot in the door? Is it something you guys do together? And it's something you normally wouldn't feel like doing, but you know she would say yes to if you did it this way. You know your wife. Bend as much as possible to try to create that opportunity. That's that's my whole, that's my advice to you. And I hope God gives you wisdom. Uh, Lisa versus the Cassandra effect versus perilous times says, do politics belong in the pulpit? I 100% disagree with politics in the pulpit for various reasons, but wanted your opinion. Also love your work, Mike. God bless. Thanks. Um, here's here's my current thinking on this, Lisa. Um, and remind your, you guys, um, sometimes I'm sharing things like I think that my answer about do I eat with my loved ones who are who are backslidden Christians or whatever, and I think that my answer there is clear. That's clear in scripture. My answer here is going to be mixed with some of my opinion, okay? Because we're in current events. In current events, I think that um, part of me doesn't want to see politics in the pulpit because I feel like what that means is somebody using the Bible to support their political agenda. And that I don't want. What I do, however, want is the full teaching of God's word, no matter what it says about any political party. So when, when I read scripture and I have my Christian worldview and it says that, say, abortion is a horrible thing, way worse than probably any of our hearts are telling us, um, that abortion is really terrible. When I read that, I go, this is just a, this is a truth about reality. Okay, now if you think that means I have to support the Republican Party in every way, that's where you're off. That's, that's, that's where we get wrong. But this issue is absolutely clear. Well, I think it's personally, I think it's wrong, but I want to separate politics from Christianity. And I'm like, look, this is about human rights issues. And in scripture here, let me give you an example. I'm going to be political now, but not because I care about politics. I kind of hate politics because I care about scripture. God holds whole nations, Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. He holds nations accountable for not defending the, the poor and the weak and the defenseless in their own communities. And one of those is going to be, yes, immigrants, and now I'm going to sound like a Democrat, but I'm not, you know, defending and taking care of people who are strangers in the land. 
right? One of them, is, and then you are going to sound like Democrat. Another one of them is going to be taking care of the, the weak and defenseless pre-born human beings inside the womb of their mothers where we're in our culture saying it's okay to stab them and kill them and suck them through a tube and throw them in the trash or donate them to science. That's wicked. And our, our culture has issues on both sides here with Republican and Democrat, in my opinion. There's issues on both sides. I just find myself as a Christian being unable to side, unable to pick a side. But I do think if I'm going to be completely frank with you, the Democrat policies, policies, not the people, well, the people are a train wreck all over the place in both sides, but the policies are worse, morally speaking, than the Republican ones. But that doesn't make the Republican ones good, right? Now, this is, I know I'm, a, I'm possibly offending you, Lisa. Um, I really don't mean to. I really don't mean to. But this is where I'm, I'm, the Bible's forcing me to take my Christian worldview and lay it over on top of the political mess that, it, that our world is. And I don't feel like I can just pick Republican and go Republican all the time. But I feel like on some central issues that I feel like the, they're morally more, they're the most weighty issues, that that's where I cannot go down the side that the Democratic Party has made their identity about abortion and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, anyway, it gets complicated. So my, my thought is this. I don't want Republican teach from taught from the pulpit. And I don't want Democrat taught from the pulpit. I want biblical worldview taught from the pulpit. And where that intersects the reality of politics, fine. But I'm actually not, I'm not really that big on calling our, our um, government to change its policies. That's an important thing. And it, it should happen in the church. But I'm more serious about calling our world of people to repent and trust in Christ and the sin of not caring about their neighbor and not loving this person and being racism and prejudice and that sort of thing, or the sin of abortion and murder of our own offspring that God or the blood is on our hands. Like I want to call you to repentance. Okay. But if you think that the, that, you know, abortion is a political issue, immigration is a political issue. Therefore pastors can't talk about them from the pulpit. You're actually barring us from talking about things the Bible does talk about. So my fear is that people would pick a side, Republican, Democrat. My other fear is that people would would uh, take issues that belong to God and give them give them to politics and not talk about them anymore. Um, now, personally, plenty of issues I don't understand. Okay, socialized this and that, and healthcare and medicine and things like that. These are these are a little bit beyond me, and I don't I don't I don't have public opinions about them. I have a lot of questions, and I'm just not interested in getting in the political fights. It's inevitable that when I talk to people, though, they think, oh, okay, wait, so you're Democrat. No, okay, wait, so you're so you're Republican. And I'm like, no, look, these these categories don't fit scripture. I want to be biblical. Uh, not because that makes me better. It's just I have to be able to disagree with each side where they disagree with the Bible. That's what I need to be able to do. God help me do it. Uh, Sheila Mercon or Merson says, I was saved last year and my husband is still an atheist. He doesn't want me sharing Jesus with our daughter because she she'll think, and this is a quote, she'll think he's going to hell. How do I balance my faith and my respect for him? Uh, Sheila, that's a really tough one. Um, there is a basic Christian principle that when people tell us not to talk about Jesus, we just keep talking about Jesus. This is an act. When they told the apostles, quit telling people about this Jesus, quit saying things in Jesus' name and all that, it, it bothered them for various reasons. And then they were even persecuted for it. Um, to me, I think that's the line. You draw the line there and you say, I'm not going to not tell my kid about Jesus. I'm also not going to stop telling anybody about Jesus. That doesn't mean you can't have tact about when and how you do it and all that sort of thing. Um, but 
I realize that this could cause a problem in your marriage, but my thought is that while you're doing the right thing that your husband hates, you do everything you can to be the best wife you can, to be the love him the most as, as much as possible. Um, and there's this one thing that he's going to hate, <clears throat> but hopefully in most other ways, he's just thinking like, man, she's really, she's pretty amazing, you know? Um, yeah. So how do you balance your faith and your respect for him? Um, don't lose respect for him. Don't stop respecting him. You just don't do what he says in this area because he's wrong. He's wrong. And you serve God, not man. And if your husband doesn't like it, just don't tell him where I live. <laughs> just kidding. <coughs> okay. That was question 20, but we got a bonus question. This comes from Jill uh, Johans, who says, where's the sticker that was on your guitar? Oh, that's a different guitar. That's a different guitar, actually, Jill. So I have two main guitars. I have a six string and that is a Laravie guitar. And that one I've been playing more recently. Um, Sunday nights, I, I lead worship usually for Sunday evening services at my church and, um, real low key, just, just an acoustic guitar. And I've usually been using that. Sometimes I'll use the 12 string. And when I use that, I usually put the six string over here. I just go back and forth between the two. So this is a 12 string. This is a different guitar. This one's a guild. And for the guitar people, you can, uh, you can, you can know that much information, I guess. Um, so that's it. I um, have more stuff coming for you guys. Monday, we'll have a video going through the Gospel of Mark. And then next week, I have plans to do more stuff. I don't want to tell you the plans because I might have to change my mind. So for sure, you'll see me Monday and Friday next week. We may have some surprise extra stuff in between. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Give you wisdom in his word. Give you the comfort that comes from not pride, but confidence in the truth of Christ. Take care.